Hey, what's up, everybody? In this podcast, we're going to cover the January 2019 practice bulletin from the college on gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. Now, if you remember, in 2013, the American College of OBGYN released an executive summary on hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. But this January practice bulletin has a few updates. Remember, this is the January 2019 practice bulletin on gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. All right, so we're not actually going to cover the entire practice bulletin because it's pretty large, but I wanted to focus on two very clinically applicable sections that we all can learn from. They have to do specifically with intrapartum care. The first is magnesium sulfate seizure prophylaxis, and the other is pain control or anesthesia. Well, here's what I mean by this. For seizure prophylaxis, well, who should actually get mag? I mean, that's a good question, right? I mean, is it only those women with severe preeclampsia or what about those with gestational hypertension? And what about pain control? I mean, isn't an epidural or a spinal anesthetic uh, complicated and risky in a patient with preeclampsia? Well, we're going to face those two issues head on, starting right now, focusing on seizure prophylaxis. Okay, let's get into magnesium sulfate for seizure prophylaxis. A significant body of evidence attests to the efficacy of mag sulfate to prevent seizures in women with preeclampsia with severe features and, of course, its use in eclampsia. In the MAGPIE study, a randomized placebo-controlled trial with over 10,000 participants, the seizure rate was reduced overall by more than one-half with mag sulfate. Additionally, in a subsequent systematic review that included the MAGPIE study and five other studies, MAG sulfate compared with placebo more than halved the risk of eclampsia, reduced the risk of placental abruption, and helped reduce the risk of maternal mortality. But there is no consensus regarding the prophylactic use of mag sulfate for the prevention of seizures in women with gestational hypertension or preeclampsia who don't have severe features. Two small randomized trials that had about a total of 350 women allocated women with preeclampsia without severe features to either placebo or mag sulfate and reported no cases of eclampsia among women allocated to placebo and no significant difference in the proportion of women that progressed to severe preeclampsia. However, given the small sample size, the results of these studies cannot actually be used for clinical guidance. Now, here's a clinical pearl. The rate of seizures in preeclampsia with severe features without mag sulfate is four times larger than in those women who do not have severe features. In other words, it's four in 200 versus one in 200. All right, well, here's a clinical pearl. According to the college, the evidence regarding the benefit-to-risk ratio of mag prophylaxis is actually less supportive of routine use in preeclampsia without severe features. So, according to the college, the decision of whether to use mag or not for seizure prophylaxis in patients who have preeclampsia without severe features should be determined by the patient and the physician in a co-decision-making process. Now, here's the statement from the college. Although the benefit-to-risk ratio for routine prophylaxis is less compelling for patients in high-resource settings like the U.S., it is recommended that mag sulfate should be used for the prevention and treatment of seizures in women with gestational hypertension and, of course, preeclampsia with severe features or eclampsia. 
In other words, although the data is not very good for treating mild preeclampsia or gestational hypertension, the college says it's still recommended. This is actually a change from 2013 because the executive summary in 2013 stated that max sulfate could be preferentially reserved for severe preeclampsia. But now in January 2019, the call stance is much more conservative and global to include treatment with maxophate for gestational hypertension and preeclampsia with mild features that are not severe based on physician discretion. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, here's how the January practice bulletin also throws a wrench into what we've always come to know as fact and true. Remember that we've always learned that 4 to 8 milliequivalents per liter is the therapeutic level of MAG for preeclampsia management, right? But according to the college, there's still sparse data regarding the ideal dose of MAG and even the therapeutic range that's commonly quoted as 4 to 8 milliequivalents per liter is questionable. Seizures occur even with MAG at therapeutic levels, of course, and several trials using infusion rates of 1 gram per hour, frequently associated with subtherapeutic MAG levels, were also able to significantly reduce the rate of eclampsia or recurrent convulsions. Pretty tricky, right? So larger volume of distributions and higher BMIs can also affect the dosage and the duration needed to reach adequate circulating levels. So listen to this. It's been reported in patients with a high BMI, especially those greater than 35, that the antepartum level of MAG can remain subtherapeutic for as long as 18 hours after infusion is started with an IV bolus of about 4.5 grams, followed by about 1.5 to 1.8 grams per hour. So, infusion rates that are just a little bit higher, like 2 grams per hour, have also been associated with increased perinatal mortality in some reviews. So, it's tricky. So, these data may be considered supportive for the currently and the most common, the most popular regimen used in the U.S., which is an IV administration of 4 to 6 grams to load over 20 to 30 minutes, followed by a maintenance dose of 1 to 2 grams per hour. Now, for women who require a C-section before the onset of labor, the infusion should ideally begin before surgery, continue during the C-section, and of course continue for 24 hours afterwards. Now, here's a quick reminder about adverse events with MAG. Remember that deep tendon reflexes are lost at a serum MAG level of 7 milliequivalents per liter. Respiratory depression occurs at 10 milliequivalents per liter, and cardiac arrest occurs at 25 milliequivalents per liter. Now, in patients who have mild renal failure, defined as a serum creatinine of 1 to 1.5 milligrams per deciliter, or who have oliguria, that's defined as urine output less than 30 mLs per hour for more than 4 hours. The loading dose of 4 to 6 grams should still be done. However, the maintenance dose should be dropped to 1 gram per hour. So using a lower loading dose, like 4 grams, because you're trying to be conservative, right, may be associated with sub-therapeutic levels for at least 4 hours after loading. 
towards the clinical pearl. Load with the same dose of 4 to 6 grams, but drop the maintenance to 1 gram per hour. All right, as we wrap up this section on MAG, a quick word about toxicity. Remember that in patients at risk of impending respiratory depression may require tracheal intubation and emergency correction with calcium gluconate. That's a 10% solution, which is 10 mLs IV, usually over about three minutes, along with Lasix IV to accelerate the rate of urinary excretion. Everybody tends to remember the 10% calcium gluconate, but tends to forget that Lasix is part of the rescue management. All right, we're going to focus now on the second section of intrapartum care, which is pain control. Remember, we covered two issues here, seizure prophylaxis and anesthesia considerations. Now, with improved techniques over the past decades, regional anesthesia has become the preferred technique for women with preeclampsia with severe features and eclampsia for labor and delivery. A secondary analysis of women with preeclampsia with severe features in the randomized trial of low-dose aspirin reported that epidural anesthesia was not associated with an increased risk of cesarean delivery, pulmonary edema, or renal failure, so that's reassuring. Now, when the use of spinal or epidural anesthesia in women with severe preeclampsia were compared in a randomized trial, the incidence of hypotension was higher in the spinal group. Again, that's the incidence of hypotension was higher in the spinal group, which was about 51% versus 23%. But this was easily treated, and it was relatively short duration, In the trial was less than one minute. General anesthesia, remember, carries more risk to the pregnant woman than regional anesthesia does because of the risk of aspiration, the risk of failed intubation because of laryngeal edema, and stroke secondary to increased systemic and intracranial pressures during intubation and extubation. However, neuroaxial anesthesia and analgesia are contraindicated in the presence of coagulopathy because of the potential for hemorrhagic complications. Lastly, thrombocytopenia also increases the risk of epidural hematoma, but it seems to have a critical cutoff. That cutoff seems to be at a platelet count of 70. A systematic review of the literature supports the assertion that the risk of epidural hematoma from neuraxial anesthesia in an OB patient with a platelet count of more than 70 is exceptionally low. Extrapolating this data to previous recommendations seems to suggest that epidural or spinal anesthesia is acceptable and the risk of epidural hematoma is very low as long as the platelet counts are 70 or above. All right, as we wrap up this podcast, let's end with one final clinical pearl. Remember that mag sulfate has significant anesthesia implications because it prolongs the duration of non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. However, women with preeclampsia who require cesarean delivery should still continue mag sulfate during the delivery. This recommendation is based on the observation that although mag sulfate half-life is 5 hours and discontinuation of the infusion of mag before C-section would only minimally reduce mag concentrations, it could still possibly increase the risk of seizures. Why? Because women with preeclampsia, especially with severe features who undergo C-section, remember, still remain at increased risk of eclampsia, and the induction of general anesthesia and just the stress of delivery may reduce the seizure threshold and increase the likelihood of eclampsia in the immediate postpartum period if the infusion of mag is stopped before delivery. So remember, when they ask if that mag is going to stop for C-section, the answer is no.
Alright guys, that wraps up our quick review, specifically covering two aspects of intrapartum care from ACOG's Practice Bulletin from January 2019, which is Practice Bulletin 202 on gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. Now remember, we've already covered these two topics in separate podcasts in the past, so you can check that out in the archive. Also, remember, this does not have to do with patients with chronic hypertension, which we covered in separate podcasts just a couple of days ago. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.